When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. everyone, and welcome back to the British Royal Fanatic Podcast. I'm Hayden, your American friend with a passion for British Royal history. Before we get into things today, if you enjoy the podcast, please take a moment to rate, review, subscribe, and share wherever it is you're listening to it. It helps a lot, and it allows the podcast family to continue to grow, and I would really appreciate it. If you're also feeling generous, I know that things right now are not the best for everyone as the pandemic is still going on. But if you are feeling so inclined and want to make a donation to the podcast, there are links to do so on both Twitter and the Anchor homepage. Anything is greatly appreciated and you will get a personal shout out on the podcast. Lastly, please let me know what stories or any other topics you'd like me to delve into in future episodes. There's a lot of history to cover, so any suggestions would be wonderfully appreciated. We do have a small correction slash clarification that was pointed out by the wonderful Twitter user at Alishana Wren. I believe that's how their handle is pronounced. In Monday's episode, I diagrammed the various royal proclamations that outlined why Archie was not a prince when he was born and when he could legally make the claim to the title and to the style. The Twitter user pointed out something that I actually missed from the interview with the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. There was an implication made to Meghan that not only was Archie not going to be prince, but that he possibly is never going to be a prince. Once Prince Charles assumes the throne, there's been a lot of discussion around changing the proclamation and revising the current situation of who can be an HRH and a prince or princess. It is known both in and out of the family that Charles wants to slim the family down, make things a little bit smaller, and change how many titled members there are and who is a working royal. So the implication here is that Archie may actually never be a prince. And that was something that I personally did not address on Monday's episode. So a big thank you and shout out to at Alishana Wren on Twitter for pointing that out. I really appreciate that clarification. In terms of royal news, work is continuing both virtually and in person as engagements are becoming more and more frequent. Prince William has officially been appointed as Lord High Commissioner to the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland for 2021. He was going to be appointed last year, but with the pandemic closing off borders and travel, he stepped down, he took his name out of the running to focus on things in London and royal work around where he currently is. The appointment comes during a lot of unrest between Scotland and England as thoughts of leaving the UK are rising following the response to the pandemic. This appointment is seen as a way to mend things and try to keep relations well. Previous Lord High Commissioners have been Princess Anne, Prince Charles, Prince Edward, and of course the Queen herself. Royals are not the only ones who can hold this position, but it is upon the appointment of the sovereign who gets to be Lord High Commissioner to the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. 
Moving forward, it was in the news early this week that Catherine St. Laurent, or Laurent, has stepped down as executive director of the Archwell Foundation, set up by the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. Catherine, while no longer director, has taken on more of an advisory role after being the executive director for just under a year. James Holt will be stepping in into the executive director position within the foundation. No reason has been given for this change in leadership, and a lot about Archwell has been kept under wraps. We know it's a charitable foundation, we know that Prince Harry and Meghan set it up, but in terms of what they're doing, I think they're still ironing that out and figuring out what Archwell is going to be doing. Who knows what they have planned, that's their business, and we'll see what happens. Additionally, it was announced on Tuesday that Prince Harry has started working with BetterUp, a Silicon Valley startup that focuses on life coaching and mental health. Named their new chief impact officer, the Duke of Sussex has gone on record saying he has used their services in the past and stresses the importance of mental health. This is very refreshing and wonderful to hear that he's taking a lot of time with mental health and wanting to do the best he can there. Additionally, no further updates have been given regarding the state of the Duke of Edinburgh's health. All we know is that he's back at Windsor Castle, he made it there safely, and he's recovering in private. That is all we, the general public, know. And lastly, in fun news, Her Royal Highness Princess Eugenie celebrated her birthday this week, and Zara Tyndall, the daughter of Princess Anne, gave birth to to another child, a son. It was announced today at the time of recording. So congratulations to the Tyndall family and we wish well wishes to the new baby boy. Continuing our exploration into royal residences, we have covered quite a lot of them. We've covered Buckingham Palace, Windsor Castle, Balmoral Castle, St. James's Palace, Clarence House, Kensington Palace, and more recently, Sandringham House. Today, we are heading over to Scotland, and very coincidental with Prince William being appointed uh, to his new position as Lord High Commissioner, we are exploring the Palace of Holyrood House. Similarly to Buckingham Palace being the official London residence of the Sovereign, Holyrood House is known as the official Scottish residence of the Sovereign. Not only does it have connections to both the Scottish and English royal families, but the walls of Holyrood House have seen quite a lot of history. So stay tuned as we head over to Scotland and explore the palace of Holyrood House. The Palace of Holyrood House is located in Edinburgh, Scotland, at the end of what is commonly referred to as the Royal Mile, with Edinburgh Castle high on a hill at the opposite end. The Palace of Holyrood House has been the home of royalty for over 500 years, and it is the official residence of the Queen when she is in Scotland. Along with its full formal name, the Palace of Holyrood House, it is also referred to as plainly Hollywood House or Hollywood Palace, depending on what text you're looking at. King David I founded the Palace of Hollywood House as an Augustinian monastery in 1128, and it was quite successful in its time. 
the monastery allowed the priests living there to have an open community, which in turn really thrived. Guest lodgings were built on the property as the various sovereigns appreciated the privacy Holyrood House offered. In 1437, Edinburgh was officially recognized as the capital of Scotland. After that milestone was reached, a decision had to be made regarding where the sovereign of Scotland would reside. Edinburgh Castle, while high and overlooking the town, was exposed to the elements and also to unwelcome visitors. Hollywood House was surrounded by parkland and was better protected from the weather and also from outsiders. It offered much more protection than the castle high on the hill, and the decision was made. Hollywood House became the official seat of the sovereign. Starting in 1501, King James IV cleared the grounds to the abbey and built a palace for himself and his new bride, Margaret Tudor. Margaret Tudor is the sister of King Henry VIII of England, the infamous King Henry VIII with the six wives. It was rebuilt and redesigned to be more of a Gothic-style palace, and they even married in the abbey on the property in 1503. In all his renovations to the palace, he even went so far as to add a new building in 1512 to house his ever-growing exotic animal collection. Only a fragment of the gatehouse survives to this day. His successor, King James V, had a massive overhaul to the palace starting in the late 1520s. He added a massive tower between 1528 and 1532, and a new west front south of that tower between 1535 and 1536. (laughs) Conflict arose at the palace, as in the 1530s, the palace was invaded and robbed. It was ransacked completely. Lead from the roof was stolen, as well as bells from the towers, priceless gems, and other treasures were ripped away from the palace. The Earl of Hartford led the siege on not only the palace, but the town itself neighboring the palace. King Henry VIII attempted to have Lord Hertford's son Edward marry his infant daughter, Mary Queen of Scots. And that clearly did not go over well. According to Sir Walter Scott, this was known as, quote, the rough wooing. Mary, Queen of Scots, would then go on to marry Francis, the Dauphin of France, and he would succeed as King Francis II, but he would die in 1560. After that, she moved into the palace officially and spent most of her rather tumultuous life within the palace. They, Some of them are chapters of her life and chapters within the history of the palace that aren't necessarily the best. She married her second and third husband within the palace's great hall. However, not all were happy. In 1566, rumors were going around that she was having an affair with her private secretary, David Rizzio. Rizzio was murdered in her private apartments by a group led by her second husband, Lord Darnley, who was jealous of Rizzio's intimate relationship with the queen. Who knows if this affair was really true, but a brass plaque lays on the floor in her chambers to mark the spot where Rizzio's body laid after he was murdered. 
While all this was happening within the palace proper, we also need to remember that the Palace of Hollywood House started as a monastery, and there was a very large older abbey on the property that had been abandoned after the looting and the destruction of it during the Reformation around 1517. At this time, it was in ruins, and it was finally demolished in 1570 to make way for not only a new abbey, but in the renovation of the old abbey, they left the nave of the church and it ended up functioning as a local parish church and that nave and connections to the old abbey would still prove poignant when doing coronations and other official ceremonies on the property. When James took the throne and became King James I of England and King James VI of Scotland, he moved away from Scotland and from Holyrood House. The palace was no longer a seat of any power, and it began to fall into disrepair. Once his son Charles I took the Scottish throne, massive renovations were carried out in 1633 to mark the coronation. When thinking of a coronation, you have to think of all the processionals and the pomp and circumstance, and for Charles I, he had a massive entourage traveling with him. There were lots of nobles, horses, and other equipment, and other official regalia. And as the story goes, most of the regalia was on a boat on its way to Hollywood House. Some of these items included the fabled King Henry VIII 280 silver gilt dinner service set. But it capsized, and they lost everything on board. Anything and everything that was on there, they lost. Witches were blamed for this capsizing, and known witches in the area were rounded up, thrown in jail, and left to die. After all this happened with losing official regalia, in 1646, King Charles I appointed James Hamilton, the third Marquess of Hamilton, to the position of the Duke of Hamilton and the hereditary keeper of Hollywood House. This is a position that the dukedom still has, as the current duke, the 16th Duke of Hamilton, is still the hereditary keeper of Hollywood House, and he's been pictured in official functions next to the Queen. During the large civil war, Oliver Cromwell's troops were blighted at the palace. A huge fire raged during the war in 1650, which left considerable damage to the eastern facade of the palace. What was left standing was used as barracks for the Commonwealth troops during the war. After the war and the subsequent restoration of the monarchy, Charles II was crowned in Scotland in 1651, but he would never return. In the 1670s, the palace was restored and rebuilt by Sir William Bruce in hopes that Charles II would return, but he never did. A tower was added to the right of the palace to form a symmetrical facade, and new royal apartments were created in a sequence of richly decorated rooms arranged around a classical-style quadrangle. He was able to seamlessly bring together the older style of the original palace with a brand new design of the period. The new palace was completed in 1679, and it is what we see currently to this day. It was finished just in time for the arrival of the Duke of Albany, the Scottish title given to the king's younger brother. In England, he was known as the Duke of York, and subsequently became James VII of Scotland and James II of England in 1685. Political climate in England was a little tense, so he remained in Scotland and at Hollywood House for a few years until things calmed down. 
Bonnie Prince Charlie, the young pretender and grandson of King James II, held court at Holyrood House in September and October of 1745. It proved to be quite a popular court in its time. This was right before the Battle of Culloden and the ending of the Jacobite Rising the following April. Following this massive defeat, Bonnie Prince Charlie would flee to mainland Europe and live the remainder of his life in exile. Celebrating his victory, the Duke of Cumberland, the youngest son of King George II, stayed at the palace on his way to and from the battle. King George IV became the first reigning monarch to visit the palace since Charles I. While he held a formal reception there and really leaned into the Scottish culture at the time, he even went so far as to wear not only a kilt but some tartan fabric and really tried to show that he really supported the Scots. The palace was in no shape for him to stay there. While he was using it, it was no place for a king or really anybody to stay overnight. It was too run down and just enough in a state of disrepair to make it ill-fit for anyone to stay at the palace. Not too much is known about Queen Victoria and Hollywood House. It is known that she liked the palace, as her journal entries reflect that, but she didn't spend too much time there. She did, of course, renovate it and restore it and make it fit for someone to stay there, but she had Osborne House and she had Balmoral Castle, which she subsequently loved a little bit more than Hollywood House. The palace was seen as more of a stepping stone in a short stop or overnight stay to eventually get to Balmoral. However, her and Prince Albert did use it frequently. She had official work there and renovated the castle from top to bottom to update it to not only fit living conditions at the time, but also make it feasible for someone to stay there. She had splendid apartments for her and Prince Albert built, but upon his death in 1861, she had, much like all his other apartments, he had his apartments up at Hollywood House sealed and left exactly as he left them in his last visit. We see this also happen at the Blue Room at Windsor Castle. It was sealed shut and no one was allowed to touch it as he was the last person in there. By all accounts, she seemed to really like the palace. She liked working there. She liked staying there and it was a positive experience for her. But she didn't stay there long enough to warrant it to be called an official residence. That title hasn't come yet. A statue of her was even erected on the property and there were lots of paintings of Prince Albert and Queen Victoria at the palace commission that, if my memory is correct, still hang there. In the 20th century, King George V and Queen Mary continued restoration and renovation work on the palace, which they regarded as more of a family home than an official working residence. They were crucial in bringing Hollywood House into the 20th century by installing bathrooms, electricity, elevators, you name it. By the 1920s, the palace once again felt like a home and it was deemed well-suited to then gain the title of the official Scottish residence of the monarch. The king and queen also began the tradition of garden parties being held at the palace, which is a tradition that still exists to this day. In today's world, when the sovereign can travel, the queen makes an annual trip to Scotland and spends a week at the palace. While there, she fulfills a full week of engagements and other official meetings held within the palace. 
They are, of course, garden parties, official openings of government, festivities, dinners, you name it, held within the palace while she is there. Additionally, Prince Charles spends his own week at the palace, fulfilling other official duties as everywhere else he's known as the Prince of Wales, but in Scotland he is known as the Duke of Rothesay, and he has his own duties to fulfill there. The Palace of Hollywood House is very similar to Kensington Palace in that it is both run by the Crown Estate and the Royal Collection Trust. It is both a private home for the royals and an official museum that can be toured by the public. When not being officially used by the royals, it is open to the public to tour and explore and to really partake in the Scottish history. Of course, the only places you can't tour are the official private areas of the palace used by the royals, but that makes a lot of sense. We see that in other residences open for the public to tour. So what can you tour at the palace? You can tour the gardens, the ruins of the old abbey, the current abbey that sits on the property, and the official state rooms within the palace. These apartments include the king's official state bedroom, which as an aside, state state bedrooms are no longer used. It is very much an antiquated idea, but it is an official bedroom that was a stateroom as well. You can tour that, the throne room, the royal dining room, the privy chamber, the great gallery, and a few more. There's a whole section of the palace dedicated to Mary, Queen of Scots, and the rooms she used, and it recently went under some restoration, and it is now open to the public again. Rooms associated and used by Queen by Mary, Queen of Scots, include her bedchamber, her supper room, and the outer chamber. There is also a section of rooms dedicated to and used by Bonnie Prince Charlie. These include the Great Gallery, the Antechamber, and Lord Darnley's bedchamber. In all of these apartments within the palace, there are countless works of art, artifacts, and treasures filling the rooms that really provide a wonderful scope into history at the time. It is also the home of the Lord High Commissioner to the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. So when Prince William goes up to Scotland to assume his duties in that position, he is more than likely going to stay at the Palace of Holyrood House. Holyrood House has seen its fair share of history and has survived quite (laughs) quite a tumultuous past. It has survived murder, a fire, robbery quite a few uprisings and was the center of political life and political intrigue in Scotland for quite a few centuries. Starting as just a simple monastery all the way back in 1128, who would know all the way back then that it would still be a place of importance within the monarchy? Once things reopen and travel can resume, I'm very excited to see when the Queen will return to Scotland and stay at the palace again, and also for it to reopen. But there is so much history that I was able to cram in such a short period of time. But that, dear listeners, is a brief overview into the history of the Palace of Hollywood House. My sources for today's episode are the book The Queen's Houses, Royal Britain at Home by Alan Titchmarsh, the official website for the Royal Collection Trust, the official website for the royal family themselves, and royalcentral.co.uk. If you made it this far, thank you for stopping by the podcast today. If you want to email me to let me know how I'm doing or to suggest topics for future episodes, you can email me at britishroyalfanpod at gmail.com. Any and all recommendations are welcome. 
You can head over to Twitter and follow me there at fanatic underscore royal. I try my best to interact with you there, provide updates in real time, and in general get feedback to, of course, make the podcast the best it can be. If you are feeling inclined and would like to make a donation to support the podcast, you can donate on the Anchor homepage or click on the link on the Twitter homepage. Your donations can really help make the podcast the very best it can be, and I'm grateful for anything that you can contribute. Head over to Anchor, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more to rate, review, subscribe, and share so that we can play into the various algorithms and the podcast can continue to grow and continue to improve. I'm very excited and hopeful for what the future has to hold. Have a great rest of your day. Stay safe and stay healthy, and I will see you in the next one.